Everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, which brings us to our um, second novella in the collection of Four Past Midnight. And if you are just tuning into this particular episode, I began my review of Four Past Midnight with the review of The Langoliers. All of the episodes will be published around the same time. Um, because I don't want to spend too long in our time reviewing one particular work. So um, after after this, I'm going to jump right into the review of Secret Window, the adaptation on Secret Window, Secret Garden, and then move on to The Library Policeman and then Sundog. But when it comes to when it comes to this particular novella, Secret Window, Secret Garden, this is something that was in my head for a long time because when when I thought about starting the Stephen King cast back in August of 2014, I I weighed the pros and cons, right? I and the pros included the the knowledge that I would be rereading the Dark Tower series again. Um, this time not as an eager fanboy with my expectations set a little too high and just not calibrated the right way. Um, and because I, I didn't really know how to read critically yet. Um, so this time I would have a critical lens, which would be great. You know, I mean, I would have the joy of discovering new perspectives in the books and short stories. And so those are some of the pros. Then I thought of the cons. I immediately thought of rereading Secret Window, Secret Garden. And then having to watch the movie. Now, I've only read Secret Window, Secret Garden once. When I was a kid, so I acknowledged heading into this that I might have simply been too young to have picked up any nuance. And maybe I was negatively biased from the movie, which I'd seen only once and later on as an adult, but I was old enough to have picked up on any nuance. Not that there really was much of any, as far as I remember. And all I remember from that movie was that I was bored to tears and Johnny Depp made baby noises at the end. So I wasn't really looking to rereading this. Um... Well, how did the reread go? Well, his introductory note on the text presents a wonderful thesis on the secret window through which writers must peer and what happens when the window breaks. So even before getting into the reading of this, it was making me come around um, and, and go into it with, with an open mind. So before I get any further, let me get to the Wikipedia entry so that I have a basis for my analysis. Mort Rainey is a successful novelist in Maine. One day he is confronted by a man from Mississippi named John Shooter who claims Mort plagiarized a story he wrote. Mort denies ever plagiarizing anything. Shooter leaves, but not before leaving his manuscript, Secret Window, Secret Garden. Mort notices that Shooter left 
without his story, he drops it in the trash can. When Mort's housemaid recovers the manuscript, thinking it belongs to Mort, he finally reads Shooter's story, discovering that it is almost identical to his short story, Sewing Season. The two differ, but very slightly. They share the same plot elements. The only differences are the title, the character's name, the diction, and the ending. Mort becomes disturbed by these findings. Shooter returns a few days later. Having learned that Sewing Season was published two years before Shooter claimed to have written Secret Window, Secret Garden, Mort confronts Shooter with the information. An enraged Shooter um, accuses Mort of lying and demands proof, giving Mort three days to show him his published story. Overnight, he kills Mort's cat and burns down the house of Mort's ex-wife, which contained the magazine issue in which Sewing Season was published. Mort orders a new copy of the magazine. He also asks his caretaker, Greg Carstairs, to tail Shooter and talk to a man named Tom Greenleaf, who drove past Mortar Mort and Shooter. Shooter, angry that Mort has involved other people in their business, kills both men and plants evidence framing Mort for the murders. Upon receiving the magazine and returning home, Mort finds that sewing season has been removed. Mort realizes that John Shooter is really his own split personality. Tom had not seen Shooter while driving by, he saw Mort by himself. Mort realizes he burned down his own home, killed his own cat, murdered two people. He blacks out. Fifteen minutes later, he awakens, only to hear what he believes to be Shooter pulling into his driveway at the time they had arranged to meet. Desperate for any sign of his own sanity, he rushes outside, only to find his ex-wife, Amy. Devastated, he loses control of his body and his mind to Shooter. Amy discovers that Mort has gone insane, having written the word Shooter all over the house. She goes to Mort's study, where Shooter attempts to kill her in an ambush she manages to escape. Shooter, chasing Amy outside, is shot by her insurance agent. Mort becomes himself again, addresses Amy, and dies. Later, Amy and Ted Milner, a man she had an affair with before divorcing Mort, discuss her ex-husband's motives. She, does, she insists that Mort had become two people, one of them a character so vivid it became real. She then recalls something Tom had witnessed. When he drove past Mort alone, he took a look in his rearview mirror and saw a Shooter with Mort, although transparent. Amy then reveals that while digging through Mort's house, she found Shooter's trademark hat. She took it out to the trash and planted it right side up on a trash bag. When she returned, she found a note from Shooter inside the overturned hat revealing that he has traveled back to Mississippi. Amy remarks that Mort had created a character so vivid he actually came to life. So my analysis. Um, King launches into the story with the most writer-heavy beginning to any of his writer-heavy stories. But King has already acknowledged the dwindling patience of the readers for this subject within his introduction, and he treats the subject as if we should be familiar with it by now. So that when Mort Rainey thinks the man on the doorstep doesn't look real, the reader should immediately think of George Stark from The Dark Half. I want to point out that Mort is facing the stranger in a doorway. This aligns with King's opening argument of the writer's mind being a window. Here, he expands upon it. Mort and his stranger, later to be revealed as John Shooter, are the same person, so they aren't separated by a pane of glass. There isn't a barrier between them, hence a doorway. The confrontation between the two men is quiet but unnerving in the fact that John Shooter is so reserved even while accusing a best-selling author of stealing his story. There's a lot of fun to be had from comparing the excerpts between the two stories. What do these excerpts tell us about each writer? Is King making a point here? Is he saying that one is better over the other? If so, which one? 
Before we can spend too long dwelling on these questions, Mort and Amy have a conversation on the phone. This now presents the second divorced marriage in the collection, the first having taken place in the Langoliers with Brian Engel. With divorce so prevalent in this collection, one can't help but wonder his status in life at this time. In the introduction, he states, they, the stories in this collection, came from a mind which found itself turning, at least temporarily, to darker subjects. Famously, King had struggled with dependency issues in the years leading up to this collection and the next novel, Needful Things, is the first novel he'd written while actively sober. I don't want to spend too much time speculating because that's all it is, speculation, but when it comes down to marriages that involve a partner who struggles with dependency, divorce is often in the cards. It's not hard to imagine this becoming a possibility during the darker times of his dependency. Anyway, soon after, Mort and Shooter have their second confrontation, and here, Mort realizes how dangerous Shooter really is. What we had originally mistaken for serenity is actually barely disguised rage. And our novella's central mystery has emerged. We can't deny that the two stories are nearly identical, so the question is, how are they so similar? If Mort did steal it, how did he do it? Mort drops the bombshell on Shooter that the original publication predated Shooter's writing of his version, nullifying Shooter's claim of plagiarism. Shooter gives Mort three days to get his hands on the original publication, and then King presents his second mystery. Shooter reveals there's another reason, the real reason, he came to Mort. King then teases the real horrors that are yet to come. He, at, he ups the ante with a threatening note from Shooter and the murder of Bump, Mort's cat, who was running on borrowed time, really. As soon as Bump was introduced, you knew that he was going to die. And immediately after, Mort discovers that someone had burned their house to the ground, and it's here that Mort does not follow through with logic of any sort. An issue with some of King's works is that he has to position his characters both within a recognizable reality, but one not recognizable enough that the characters operate within the same systems. But he has to provide the systems in order to make it recognizable. Yet, when characters choose not to operate within the systems, the worlds he's crafted look less recognizable and the characters come off as of foolish. Take, for instance, Mort's decision after he discovers his house is burned to the ground. Within a span of minutes, he's learned that his cat has been murdered to make a point and that his house has burned down from a fire that has been started in his study. Rather than keeping the threatening note which hung next to the corpse of Bump, he crumpled it up and decides not to bring it to the police. That is a character acting illogically within a recognizable reality. There is a system... In existence, uh, law, law enforcement that is designed to serve and protect, and by choosing to take matters into his own hands, you can see the hand of the writer positioning his characters where he needs them to go. Contrast that with the dark half. The characters worked with the police, and eventually the attention came from the fact that the police were involved. With that said, Mort does question his own motives, so King makes it work. And with the reveal at the end, it all makes sense. But I, I just wanted to take the time to point that out. Mort wonders why he's playing vigilante. And the reader can't help but wonder if Mort is using Shooter as a target to channel his hidden rage. We take a trip to Derry to the wreckage of Amy and Mort's recently burned house. And King continues to remind the reader that Ted, the man for whom Amy had left Mort, speaks with a southern accent. It's something that grows and grows on Mort's patience, and the reader links the character of Ted and Shooter together, both men speaking with southern accents. Both men have burst into Mort's life, taking something in both cases. King takes, sorry, Ted takes his marriage, um, and at least that's how Mort sees it, and Shooter has taken ownership of his story. 
King complicates matters more when Ted reveals that he comes from a place called Shooter's Knob, Tennessee. At this point, King, who had already established that part of Mort's memory are foggy, continues to smudge the glass of the secret window, if you will. He realizes that Amy's room included a secret window which looked out into a secret garden which just so happens to be the title of John Shooter's novel. Now, how can this be? At this point, maybe the reader is thinking that about the dark half, where the two characters were established through a psychic link. Perhaps John Shooter is the George Stark to Mort Rainey's Thad Beaumont. Maybe information ran back and forth through some psychic channel. Is King just riffing on a favorite chord? Is this intentional on his part? So let's take a moment to make a general comparison to The Dark Half. While that novel was a personal story, both in perspective and personal to the writer, it included dozens of characters, literary agents, small-town cops, state troopers, photographers, gravediggers, small-town residents, editors, college professors, etc. The world spun around the center that was Thad Beaumont, but we saw the story through multiple perspectives of many of the other characters. Here, however, we see everything through Mort's perspective, and the characters with whom he interacts with is incredibly limited. At times, it functions like a play, with Mort, Amy, and Ted bouncing off each other, the tension between the three growing palpable as the scene goes on. At times, it's a two-man play, as Mort and Shooter trades barbs back and forth. When Mort returns to his house, King teases the identity of John Shooter when Mort is convinced that Shooter is in the bathroom and Mort swings the poker towards Shooter before he realizes that what he believes is Shooter is actually his own reflection. Reading this for the first time in a post-Fight Club world makes for an underwhelming or at least unsurprising ultimate reveal. I think if you're reading this for the first time, you can figure out where it's headed. So when it comes back to Mort that the man who he waved at when he was talking to Shooter said that Mort was alone on the side of the road, it's not much of a surprise. The more Mort investigates of the situation, the more his reality begins to become undone. Or rather, the more his two realities begin to merge. So after the truth of the situation begins to manifest itself, it's no coincidence that the most identical aspect of Shooter shows up on Mort's doorstep, his wide-brimmed black hat, which Mort soon tries on only to find that it fits perfectly. Of course it does. Things continue to unravel now at a quick pace as Mort finds the bodies of his two of his friends, both murdered by Shooter. Then Mort, during a dream, remembers that he had plagiarized once before from a man named John Kittner, and Shooter, in a dream, basically gives his identity away by telling Mort that he, Mort, put him together wrong. We get the flashback of how Mort jumpstarted his career um, with the publication of Another Man's Story, a fact which he quickly buried in his subconscious but is now bubbling up to the surface. And that's when Mort can't run from the truth anymore. No, Mort. That doesn't make sense. Would you like to do something that does make sense? Call the police then. That makes sense. Call the police and tell them to come down and lock you up. Tell them to do it fast before you can do any more damage. Tell them to do it before you can kill anybody else. So he's starting to accept the fact that things are getting crazy. And that's all laid out on page 364. You killed two men, the little voice whispered. You killed Tom because he knew you were alone that day, and you killed Greg so he wouldn't find out for sure. If you had just killed Tom, Greg wouldn't have called the police, and you didn't want that, couldn't have that. Not until this horrible story you've been telling is all finished. You were so sore when you got... Sorry, so when you got... 
You were so sore when you got up yesterday, so stiff and sore. But it wasn't just from breaking in the bathroom door and trashing the shower stall, was it? You were a lot busier than that. You had Tom and Greg to take care of, and you were right about how the vehicles got moved. But you were the one who called Sonny Trots and pretended to be Tom. A man who just got out of town from Mississippi wouldn't know Sonny was a little deaf, but you would. You killed them, Mort. You killed those men. And just as Mort realizes that his personality had split, Amy's car rolls into the driveway. Shooter's persona takes over his mind as she gets out of her car. The, perspe the perspective switches from Mort to Amy, which signifies the death of the Mort persona. Now that Shooter is the dominant personality, he has become the monster in a Stephen King book in which Amy now stars. There's a harrowing scene in which Shooter attempts to murder Amy, but is shot and killed. Amy's saved. King then presents an epilogue where he makes it clear that though this novella might have appeared to be a psychological thriller, it's actually firmly within the realm of the supernatural, as it's revealed that Tom, when driving past Mort, as Mort believed he was talking to Shooter, um, looked in the rearview mirror and saw that Mort was talking to a ghost. King had seeded this scene earlier when it was stated that Tom sounded funny when talking about this moment and was described as confused. Reading th this for the first time, you assume it's because he realized that Mort was talking to himself, that there wasn't another man. Now it's clear is that he was talking confused about because he did see something, he just wasn't sure what he saw. And lastly, Amy recounts seeing Shooter's hat in the house and how she took it to the trash. When returning to the house, she discovered the hat again with a note from Shooter apologizing, which provides a great little kicker of an ending. Very, very Twilight Zone. It should be noted that while this isn't a pure sequel to The Dark Half, it in some ways functions as a thematic sequel to The Dark Half. If we follow the trajectory of our characters from the Dark Half, the Dark Half ended with the insinuation that the events of the novel were too much of a strain on Thad and Liz's relationship. So it doesn't come as a surprise when it's revealed that Mort and his wife, Abby, are divorced. And within the story itself, there should be no surprise that these characters are divorced. I mean, first, the first of Mort's stories that we get a glimpse of is about a man murdering and burying his wife. Then, the next story that comes into play is about a man catching his wife cheating. The third story, one brought, us, um, brought to Mort by Shooter, is a recreation of the first story, again, about killing a wife. And then to confuse things, Shooter's story is somehow inspired by the secret window, secret garden of Amy's view from a room where she liked to write herself. It also includes the villain of the piece demanding that the writer main character writes a story under the villain's name. So, I mean, you definitely see some dark half stuff there now all in all uh secret window secret garden was a lot of fun it was a lot better than i remember it being and i wonder how the movie is going to hold up upon rewatch you know i thought the novella the second time around was tense it was a paranoid mystery filler that that played off king's previous musings on writings and writers specifically the dark half like i mentioned and though he didn't need to wrap it up in a supernatural bow the supernatural twist ending is a wonderful little touch it ties into the larger themes of Four Past Midnight because this is a man whose present is haunted by the ghost of his past. Though the novel doesn't deal with time the way that the Langoliers had, time is something that's still present within the story, specifically missing time. There are large chunks of time where Mort ceases to be Mort and Shooter takes over, which is enough of a justification to include within this novella in the collection. 
So I have some Stephen Kingisms here, which I'm going to read. Um, the first of which uh, can take place on that can take place does take place on page 237 of the um, paperback edition, and it's in the um, it's in the notes section of of the uh, the Langolier. Sorry, of the of the collection. Um, and Stephen King talking to us. Um, I'm one of those people who believes that life is a series of cycles. Wheels within wheels, some meshing with others, some spinning alone, but all of them performing some finite repeating function. I like that abstract image of life as something like an efficient factory machine, probably because... Actual life up close and personal seems so messy and strange. It's nice to be able to pull away every once in a while and say, there's a pattern to this after all. I'm not sure what it means, but by God, I see it. All these wheels seem to finish their cycles at roughly the same time, and when they do, about every 20 years would be my guess, we go through a time when we end things. Psychologists even have lifted a parliamentary term to describe this phenomenon. They call it cloture. Um... Cycles and the concept of cycles, the working of cycles, um, is something that pops up again and again and again in King works, um, most famously and most well done in the Dark Tower series. Ka is a wheel, he writes. That's the 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 uh, may the force be with you statement. The so say we all um, live long and prosper. That it's it's that. It's that statement that is said again and again and again that has a lot of reverence and meaning and deep-seated power behind it. And that's the, that's the major theme that runs throughout the Dark Tower series. But we see cycles again in The Stand. We see cycles in It. Um, so cycles is definitely something that King has worked with through his fiction. But here, um, he, he wrote about it um, in this nonfiction introduction. Our second uh, Stephen Kingism is writers as protagonists. Um, so most recently we saw it with Mr. Bob Jenkins in The Langoliers. Um, we have seen it with Ben Mears in Salem's Lot, Jack Torrance in The Shining, Bill Denbro in It, uh, Bobby Anderson and Jim Gardner in The Tommyknockers. Um, so the, the, the writer is a character that we will definitely add Beaumont in The Dark Half. It's something that we see again and again and again. Um, number three is killing a wife and burying her in a garden. This is similar to the plot of a story found within the collection Full Dark No Stars. Number four is the corn. Um, Mort dreams of the cornfield found within Shooter's story. Um, and corn dreams of corn can be found in Children of the Corn and The Stand. Number five is an alter ego, a literary alter ego driving a car with Mississippi license plates, which was last seen in the dark half. Um, number six is people clenching fists so hard it leaves little smiley faces slash semicircles slash crescent moons, which is uh, just a description that King uses again and again and again. Um... Number seven is the repetition of a literary alter ego's name in the dark half. It was Stark. Here, it's Shooter. So when Stark was sitting down trying to write, all he could write was Stark. Um, here, Shooter's name is written all over the inside of Mort's house. Um, number eight is a possessed writer attempting to murder his wife, which was last seen in The Shining. And number nine is the prophetic dream, which we see again and again in Stephen King's works. 
Uh, number, I'm sorry. Uh, then we have our Stephen King Easter eggs, and our Easter eggs are little shout outs and references to other King works. Um, and the first is, um, or really the only one, it's a big one, is Derry. Um, Derry is where Amy lives, where Mort had lived before uh, the divorce. Um, and specifically, uh, they lived on Kansas Street, a street, with, a street which will be very familiar to anyone that has read it. Now, if you've listened to my bonus episode, um, A Trip to Derry, um, I recount how I went on the Stephen King tour in Bangor, Maine. Um, and I saw a number of um, buildings and streets that pop up in Derry. So again, I'm going to plug Stephen King Tours. Uh, you can find it on sk-tours.com. I strongly recommend uh, going on that tour if you are a Stephen King fan because Stu, the, uh, um, your tour guide, will take you all through the town that he calls home, Bangor, but you know it better as Derry. All right, everyone. So... Um, what I'm doing, like I said, with, with the, the reviews of Four Past Midnight, um, they're all being published around the same time. Um, so if you are just kind of want to get to the next story, you can go and listen to my review of The Library Policeman. Um, but if you want to continue uh, with my thoughts on Secret Window, Secret Garden, then you can just go to my review of Secret Window, uh, starring Johnny Depp, John Turturro, and uh, Maria Bello. I believe it's Maria Bill off the top of my head. I'm not sure. But I will confirm that in the review of Secret Window. All right, everyone. Uh, if you have not done so already, please feel free to write me a review on iTunes. Uh, an iTunes review and an iTunes subscription really help the publicity um, and recognition of the Stephen King cast. Currently, if you search Stephen King cast, okay, write out Stephen King cast in iTunes. It's not even the first podcast that pops up. Uh, and the reason for that is because of the, the amount of subscriptions um, and reviews. So the more I get, you know, the more it gets out there. So I thank you everyone for the reviews and the emails that I've gotten. If you have not written an email, um, feel free to do so at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, and you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, and Tumblr. And I will see you here, same King time, same King channel, next week, Stephen King cast. And she look she smile in her eyes a sea. She's got a secret garden where everything you